I added one more podcast to the giant podcast bin. Now you have plucked that podcast out and started listening. I took my microphone and found some human folk. Then I recorded all the noises while we spoke. My name is Adam Buxton. I'm a man. I want you to enjoy this. That's the plan. a high one how you doing podcats <coughs> excuse me that was probably the moment for a lot of people where they thought nah i don't think this podcast is for me and they would have switched off right then or they would have just skipped to the conversation hey look it's cool either way it's not a problem i'm very easy going wow i wish you could be out here with me today podcats not all of you but a nice selection of some of the better ones It is just the most incredibly beautiful day. And I am joined, as usual, on a walk by my best dog friend, Rosie Buxton. Half whippet, half poodle, all dog. And one of the best ones at that. (laughs) She's taking a dump. A summary dump. Anyway, listen. Today you will hear my conversation with British writer Nina Stibby. Nina Fax. Nina was brought up in Leicester with uh, her unconventional single mum and her upbringing and the twists and turns her life took thereafter formed the basis for a series of comic novels featuring Nina's fictional alter ego, Lizzie Vogel. Nina's book Man at the Helm, published in 2014, is about Lizzie and her siblings trying to find a suitable man for their wayward mum. Paradise Lodge, published in 2016, finds the teenage Lizzie working at a care home for the elderly. Like Man at the Helm, the story is set in the 70s and it gives Nina the opportunity to make some very funny observations about the peculiarities of British life and society in that decade. And we talked about some of the more shocking of those uh, peculiarities in this conversation. So if you're likely to be offended by frank discussions of attitudes and behaviour that most of us would now agree are not acceptable, then you might want to have a finger or whatever part of your body you use to stop offensive podcasts hovering over the pause button. The latest in Nina's Lizzie Vogel series is called Reasons to be Cheerful. That was published earlier this year, 2019. And this time the story takes place in the early 80s, as Lizzie finds work as a dental assistant, a job that Nina herself did for several years as a young woman. We'll talk about that. Nina's first book, Love Nina, Dispatches from Family Life, was published in 2013. And Love Nina was a collection of letters that Nina wrote to her sister in the 80s while she was working in North London as a nanny to the children of Mary Kay Wilmers, who was the editor of the London Review of Books. The letters chart the young Nina's adventures at the Wilmers' house, which included regular encounters with a variety of colourful characters, including stars of the literary world like Jonathan Miller and especially Alan Bennett, who would join Nina, Mary and the children uh, quite a lot for supper. Over the course of the book, you also see Nina making the decision to go into higher education and study humanities at Thames Poly, which was where she met her friend Stella. And Stella was with Nina the day we recorded our conversation. 
she was sat on the same sofa as Nina and now and then Nina would ask her a question and uh, Stella would respond off mic. Um, but yeah, it was, it was really fun hanging out with Nina and Stella. I'll be back at the end with more solo burbling. But right now, here we go. Nina, it's very nice to meet you. Hey, it's lovely to be here. With your friend Stella. She is sat on the sofa with you. Yes, Stella Heath. So I said that in a way that suddenly changes the tone of our interaction and turns it into like, we're live. Yes, I know, I noticed. <laughs> and I've, I'm a bit, I'm lagging behind. Right, I'm going to change. Hi! <laughs> and you, were, as soon as I said, hi Nina, nice to meet you, you immediately looked guarded. I did. Well, that's that happens, doesn't it? Yes. So I'm going to, I'm a little horse actually. Can you tell I'm a little horse? No, I couldn't tell. Yeah, I'm not I'm just thinking this. of little horse jokes. Yeah, I know. I knew you would. Sorry. That's just you. That's the level I generally operate Yeah, good. At. That's why I'm here. Now you are, I mean, there's a lot I want to talk to you about. I really love your stuff. My friend Garth Jennings got me into it. Oh, Garth. Uh, I a love few Garth. years ago. So how do you know Garth? I know Garth because out of the blue, he wrote to me to say how much he liked my books. I think my first book, actually, Love Nina. And when people do that, and they have no reason to do it, it's so touching. So we sort of kept in touch after he'd done that we're kind of friends and we love each other's stuff. You know, I love his films. I love Son of Rambo, which I think you had a little part in. I you? was in Son of Rambo. Yes, that's yeah. one of the three films in 2006. Were you the, were you the teacher? Wait, I no. was the teacher and I was yes. badly injured in the head in each of the films that I was in. Yeah. And I've got a part in Sing 2. Oh, good. Are you in Sing 1? I'm Garth always says, oh, yeah, he's in Sing One. But it's really like I'm, I'm, I say two words in the background of well, a that, couple of no, scenes. No, you're in Sing One then. So, yes, but you've got a bigger part in Sing Two. I, so far, you never know, though. You never uh, know. Anything could happen. Exactly. You Things could just always be slashed. Exactly. But aren't they great films? Well, I've not seen Sing Two, but Sing One is just a joy. You've got children, right? Yes. And were they the right age for Sing? They were the right age for Sing. They were a little bit older than the target audience. But funnily enough, they went to see it in Truro when it came out and they loved it. Mm. And and my son, Alfie, is now 17, is a complete Beatles fan. He's mad, has always been mad on the Beatles. And when that song, I can't even remember the name of it. Golden Slum. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, he... He was just overwhelmed. I, I decided to sing it rather than just say the title. Yeah, and then it goes to, uh, you've got to carry this. Right, carry weight. that weight. Carry yeah. that weight, yes. It's marvellous. Anyway, so yes, we loved it. I loved it. And What's Alfie's favourite Beatles album? Do you know um, that? Not that you should know necessarily. I do know. He'll be really, dis- I'm going to have to answer that question. I predict that it will be either Rubber Soul or Revolver. I think it might be Revolver. Revolver's pretty good. Yeah. He's obsessed and his favourite Beatle is George. 
Well, that's a good favourite. Yeah, he loves John, but he loves the feel of George. Yeah. And he got involved with all those films. He was involved with Alan Bennett with the, you know, the pig film. I can't remember the name of it yeah, now. Yeah, Private Function. Private Function, yes. Handmade films, yeah. wasn't it? Yeah. And they and did Life the, of Brian. Yes, and, yes, yes. Yeah, he was And an there was the whole sort of Michael Palin, Alan Bennett, George Harrison thing going on. Mm. But, Adam, do you know what's so funny? Yeah, go on. Is that I imagined that we'd be talking walking in the highways and byways of Norfolk. We should have done that. I know. But it's too far away from you. But the thing is, uh, you know, in my mind, sometimes I imagine you sort of with Zadie Smith sort of in a studio. No, we sat here. Did you? This is my friend Mark and Zivy's house in London. So this is where you do the... But but, uh, you know when you did say Garth and Mindhorn? Yeah, that was... Why are you walking along? Yeah, because they're the only people that will come and visit me in Norfolk. But you see, I wanted to. Ah. And you know when I was a bit sort of, oh, I can't do it yet, I'll do it later. It wasn't... If I thought it was in London, I would have done it then. Right. But I thought I'd got to get from Truro to Norfolk. And I thought, well, I I must make a thing of it. Because you know when you live in Norfolk or Cornwall, Uh you come to London and you just cram everything in, don't you? Yeah. And so you think, oh, I've got to go and do the interview with blah so oh i'll see that person and that person that person and then you have a free evening and you go to a bizarre party that you wouldn't perhaps have gone to yeah that's isn't that strange that that happens it's fun though don't you think oh yes because you do things you would never have done yeah i mean i i it took me a while to make that adjustment yeah because every time i would go to london i'd just be like i'd go mental yes and I'd be like, I'm off the leash. I can do what yes, I want. There's no yes. children around. My wife's not around. Yes. I wasn't sort of doing anything inappropriate, but I was, you know, yeah, just gallivanting. Yes. Do you get bored with gall- I mean, I got bored with gallivanting quite quickly. I did get bored. I used to come back and feel all hollow. Yes. I- and just reproach myself the next morning oh, gosh, for having yes, drunk too same. much or whatever. But I'd still be in my wellies from Cornwall because in Cornwall, it's probably the same in Norfolk. We don't really have to get dressed. I mean, you just... Pop an anorak on and a pair of wellies and head out to the woods. It is the same in Norfolk. We don't generally dress. Yeah. I work in a shed that's across the way from the house. Our house is out in the middle of the countryside. See, this is what I was imagining. Yeah. And so in the morning, I'll get my cup of tea and some toast and I'll walk across to the shed, which is where my studio is. And sometimes, and I've got a, it's like a little flat over there. Yeah. And I've got my own washing machine and things like that. It's pretty great. You're self-contained. Yeah, I'm totally independent from the chaos in the main house if I want to be. Oh, we all need this. It's good. And it's where my dad lived when he moved in with us. And so it's very useful to have. And now my teenage sons use it to hang out and have parties and things like that. We're very lucky. But uh, occasionally I will forget that I've left all the washing across the way and I have no clean clothes. So I'll have to just walk nude across to the (laughs) shed. And the children have usually gone to school. But I'm always thinking, this is risky because the DPD guy could turn up at any second. Yeah, absolutely. But those little risks are so enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah. We all do it. I mean, I don't sort of dash across the courtyard naked like you do. But I do do things and I think this is really... The thing I do is I go for a wee downstairs and I don't shut the door. And anyone... Because <laughs> I've got two teenagers and they've always got people around. And it, that would be terrible, wouldn't it? Imagine <laughs> I saw Eva's mum on the loo. It would be really shaming. <laughs> She'd think you were groovy. 
No. no. <laughs> they don't. You know that they don't think that. You know, you have to keep well out of the way. Well, everything you do as a parent is embarrassing to a teenage child, oh, isn't yes. it? No matter but what. But not all parents get that. They think they're cool. I know I'm not cool. I got it very quickly and I keep out of the way. And I'm so reluctant that it's gone a bit the other way and they'll call me, Mum, Jack's here, come and say hello. And I think, yeah, great. Because I'm so hidden away and reclusive. Yeah. But not not all parents are like that. They could try and hang out. And I think that's very uncool. No, I feel very awkward, I must say. And I think that I'm probably, as you say, too far the other way. I feel as if I'm slightly scary, grumpy. It's best way. Shadow dad. I think that's the way. That's how you should be. Mm. I'm, I'm proud of you for doing that. Thanks very much. Well done. Is still with us, right? Yeah. What's her name? Elspeth. And I've heard you talk about this before, but I'm curious. And, and you know, I, I guess we have to assume that a lot of people listening to this might be new to your stuff. So yes. I hope you won't mind repeating no, yourself to know. some degree. But um, she looms large in your fictional universe. She does. So, yes, I, my three novels are very autobiographical. And I never intended to reveal that. I always thought I'd just say they were novels. But very early on, I did blurt it out. And then people very interested because, you know, interesting stuff happens. And my mum, if you have a mum like mine, why would you not write about her? Yeah. I mean, she was in the first novel, she was a little bit tragic in a way because my father left her for a man. And that's fine nowadays. But back in the mid-60s, that was quite shaming, really, for her. Mm. And she got four kids. She was this single mum, and she was sort of groovy and a bit unorthodox and a bit badly behaved, and she's a bit, a bit of a drinker and funny. And she met this sort of rather ordinary guy, my stepdad, and she married him. But, yeah, she's always been a bit of a naughty one. And so if you've got someone like that in your life who doesn't mind you writing about it, why wouldn't you? And how did you establish that she didn't mind? Was it a formal conversation or did you just sort of start writing and then she didn't object? I had written an autobiographical novel and tried to sort of send it out to publishers and agents over the years. And that was before Love, Nina That was, was before Love, Nina, my memoir in letters came out. Yeah. So I'd written it and I'd sort of sent it out a bit. And I'd always thought, I better not publish this. It's too close to the truth and everyone's going to be really cross because... You know, I talk about my mum and I also talk about people being not very nice to us and being a bit sort of snippy about my mum being a single mum and all that kind of stuff. And so it was just sort of something I did. I was just always tinkering with it. And then completely by accident, I published Love Nina because a publisher happened to be in somebody's house and I'd sent her some of the letters. We'd found the letters and I was typing them up and emailing them to this woman who I'd worked for as a nanny. And this publisher happened to be in her house and she happened to read them and offered me a contract for the book. And so that was 
I mean, Adam, that's such a huge thing. I was 50 years old. Mm. You know, imagine that. It was just crazy. So I quickly then wanted to rewrite the letters and make myself look better and nicer and cleverer. <laughs> but I couldn't because she'd got them. The publisher already had them. So that was it. I had to stand behind them exactly as they, they were. Oh, really? You didn't change that much? I took a few things out. Yeah. But I wasn't allowed to change or add anything. So, you know, there I was sort of being awful about Shakespeare and being awful about Thomas Hardy and sort of being a bit flippant about Alan Bennett. I did, You know, if I'd been able to edit the letters, I'd have said, oh, Alan Bennett, he's writing this cutting-edge television, he's such a marvel. But what I'd really written in 1982 or whatever, I'd written Alan Bennett really doesn't know how to make a salad. He keeps putting oranges in it or that kind of thing. And so... He's just this ordinary, rather silly person yeah. instead of the Marvel. That he was. So that book came out. But of course, that's what's so great about it is well, that you do it, get that completely as it turned out, different yes, perspective. That's yeah. what most people liked about it. Yeah, yeah. I think Alan would quite have liked me to have included some other stuff about him, but it put him on the map, Adam. Come yeah, on, of course. You know. No, he's done, he's done well out he's of it. He's done very well out of it. And um, <laughs> Jonathan Miller pops up as well. You borrow yeah. some tools from Jonathan yeah, Miller. Yeah, borrow and... the saw. And there are lots of sort of literary and yeah. creative people oh, your trip. Around. Well, I remember as well your trip to the theatre to see a play by Beckett. Oh, yes. Samuel Beckett. With Stella. I think yeah. Stella fell asleep in the play. Right. And he looked like a ragged old fisherman or something. He was there and in the audience. he was sat there. It was Billy Whitelaw. But it was he just was her there. sort of saying bing bong, bing bong or something. It was 85. Uh, and you weren't having it, as I recall. Uh, yeah, I didn't think much to it. And also, I'd seen Beckett sitting there and nobody believed me. And... You know, that sort of thing would always happen to me. I'd sort of, suddenly Prince Charles would be somewhere and i go, oh, look, and they go, no, it isn't. It's like the time you saw Jackie O. And i go, no, it was Jackie O. And two days ago, I saw Ken Loach in Pizza Express. <laughs> it was him on his own having a pizza, having a Veneziana. <laughs> Honestly, it was him, but nobody would believe me. It was him. I can believe that Ken yeah. Loach would be in Pizza Express. Why wouldn't? It's very late at night, though. Now, that night when we saw Ken Loach was a very exciting night because ah. I had just done an event with your friend, David Sedaris. Oh, I wanted to talk to you about him. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I, I would hesitate to call him my friend. Well, I would wish that he was. Your podcast with him made me die. Oh, good. I'm glad you liked it. Some, oh some people God. were quite upset and said, like, you should have put warnings that he was going to talk about gouging eyeballs and it eating was- them. I, but your response was so wonderful. But yeah, so I'd done an event with him mm. at the British Library and I'd had to interview him and I was absolutely terrified. Was that the first time you'd met him? Yes. I, I adore him. Yeah. I, I think he, he's my number one writer. Yeah, living I mean, writer. he's hard to beat. He's just extraordinary. He's like an alien. Yeah. The way he looks at the world. He wrote me a postcard afterwards. Oh, you lucky thing. Uh, I'm sure he'll write you one. He'd better write me a postcard. He took my address. At one point, he just said, oh, what's your address? And he wrote me a postcard. I, I know that he does it a lot. He's oh, well, just now one if of he these... doesn't send me one, I'm going to be devastated. <laughs> <laughs> Mind you, the post in Truro can be a bit late. Yeah. Okay. Go on, tell me, what did he say? What was he like? It, he was absolutely fantastic. I was very intimidated and very nervous. Same, yes. Because I thought, 
Where's he going to be at? He could easily be quite cranky and spiky. That's what I thought, but I don't think he ever would be. No, instead he was very warm, like yes. immediately. And so polite and formal. Yeah, hence the letter writing thing, the yes, postcard yes. thing. And hence the compulsion to meet people and talk to them at length and not just do a sort of cursory meet and greet. Yeah, Have you seen him doing a signing? No, but we talked about it's it. It's extraordinary. Yeah, he's there for 11 hours. I still don't quite understand the logistics of how you do an event in the evening and then stay at the venue for up to 11 well, hours. I'll tell you what happens. Quite often at a big venue, he will start the signing well before the event. Ah. So it starts before and people have got to know that. And then afterwards, he sits and he, he says how big the table is to be and exactly how it is. And he has two helpers, not his. The venue has to provide two helpers. And they make people write on post-its what they want to write. And then David has his dinner. He sits at the in, table. At the table. And so he'll have, you know, steak and potatoes. And it's wonderful because one time a man reached over and took one of the potatoes. What? Yeah. A guy who was queuing to queuing get a signature? To be sat, yeah, he took one of David's potatoes. That's not cool. It wasn't cool and David was really upset. Yeah. Now, I'm trying to make it sound as if I was there when it happened, but I wasn't. I think it might have been in the USA. But it happened because David told me all about it. It sounds like the kind of thing that would happen in the US. I can't see that happening in the UK. People taking each other's potatoes. No, unbidden. I can't see. I can't. I mean, if it were a chip. Yeah, that's maybe different. But I but think still. my memory is it was a, like a new potato. He's taking the piss. And he popped it in his mouth. No. And then David was so annoyed. It was sort of reflected in the signing. I'm sure. But isn't he just the most charming, delightful man? Yeah, really nice. I mean, I'm sort of counting the... Months until I can uh, ask him to come back and oh, you must have him back. talk to me more. He's just got an interesting, funny perspective on so many things. And especially nowadays where it's people are very cautious, quite rightly, a lot of the time yes. about what they say. And people are trying to think more carefully about their attitudes and prejudices. Yeah. You get the impression that he's not that much. No, he's not. <laughs> he's not. He does seem to just say it as he finds it. Yeah. And he's... Well, he's a chronicler and that's his job, but he's very liberal and kind. So he will report. I mean, you've read the diaries. Mm -hmm. Oh, my God. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of the things, some of the, you know, the domestic abuse and stuff in there, you think, wow, I'm not sure I'd be talking about that. But actually, isn't it great that he did? I think so. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I'm asked about a lot is writing about my family and yeah. do they mind is it you know and what's the moral and ethical position of this because I'm telling their story and I think possibly one of the reasons I love David Sedaris so much is because he does it more than I do yeah you know and I'm like well you know I'm not I'm not as bad as <laughs> Let's you, you know, the hook. but um Sedaris is a god yeah, he's I, great. I, I, I'm, I'm very happy with with 99.9% .9 of what he does yeah defo um yeah. I just said defo. Let's, let's <laughs> I, well, I've said same. Same? I, same's saying, nice. Yeah, but I do, I'm a bit old to say same. Nah, that's nice. That reminds me of the good old days. Oh.
one of the things Sidera seldom talks about is sex. Oh, same. <laughs> is that right? Because it... I do not like writing about sex. No, okay. But it pops up a little more than it does in David Sedaris's work. I well, think he, he has sex in his diaries, but he says, after the sex, I thought such and such. So he, we know he's had it, but he doesn't describe it. Thank it's, God. Right. It's the sort of final frontier, I would say quite rightly. I, I feel very conflicted about the sex positive modern world where people are trying to be all groovy and positive about pornography and sex in general and like, let's get it out in the open. Let's talk about it. Yes, let's not feed people's hang-ups and let's make it a sort of inclusive, non-judgmental yeah. environment. Great. But let's not remove all the things that are fun about sex, the kind of furtive, creeping around secret aspect. This is it. Yeah, no, I haven't heard many people say that because... Some people sort of don't want to read about it and don't want it out in the open and other people do. But it does slightly ruin it, doesn't it? I think it does. I don't really enjoy writing about sex and I had to write about sex in my latest book because my character, my narrator, my protagonist had become 18 and although in real life me as 18, I wasn't going anywhere near it. I was very odd and, and eccentric and strange. But I thought, well, no, she's got to at least, you know, know it exists and talk about it a little bit. So I had to sort of have her being a bit... You talk about she kisses this guy and who she really likes and she's impressed that he doesn't... Is the phrase you use, wind his head around? Yeah, he doesn't do that. <laughs> the, the clothes oh, that washer awful. style oh, God, of French kissing. kissing. I've done my neck in showing, yeah. showing Adam. It was such a shock. I remember the first time I had one of those... Because it's like... French kissing, wow, that was a revolution. When you find out, did you French her? What what are you talking about? You know, with tongues. And I thought, no, I didn't put my tongue in her mouth. I'm not insane. I don't want to die. You're just exchanging all your germs. Why on earth would you do that? That was way before I found out about oral sex. Holy Christ. Oh, God, Adam. So so French kissing, all right, great. Uh, Wow, I'm touching tongues with this person. This is very exciting. But then the day you French kiss with someone and they do the washing machine the, on that you. That thing. And it's totally, there's no passion in it whatsoever. It's oh, just God. like... Yeah. But you'd see people doing it. I don't think they do it now. You never see anyone doing it now. I don't, do you like watching people kiss like that on, in a film? Yeah, I think it's quite funny. Do you? Yeah. yeah. I don't like it. Because well, I have look, to make the noises. Like I, when, when we're watching me and my wife and they start doing a long kiss like that, we, we have to start going... <laughs> Well, the worst is when they kiss on the archers. Uh And obviously they can't sort of... It's very difficult. So they do quite a lot of sort of mouthy noises. And my friend John says they get out the plungers and the wet rags. (laughs) But, yeah, no, I'm I'm just... I think sex should be completely private and secret and we shouldn't talk about it or see it on films, really. And writers shouldn't have to write about it. Mm. I mean, there's, there's two sides, isn't there? Because I grew up in a household where sex was never mentioned. Oh, and not lucky because, you. Not because anyone was very puritanical or anything. Yeah. I don't think. They were just conservative and they thought it was embarrassing and they didn't want to deal with it. So you're younger than me, aren't you? You, yeah, must, be, you must be about 32. <laughs> That's right. Are you 50? Yeah. So you're 50. So you're not that much younger Although, than me. listeners, I actually look older than Nina does, which is a bit of a drag. No, you don't. You look oh, really yeah. young. Thanks very much. You've got very good hair. 
Thanks. Although within a year, I would say it's going to be as grey as my beard. No, but it doesn't. It's not about the colour. It's about a good thick head of hair. All right, thanks. Hey, this is nice. And you've got a good haircut. Yeah. Oh, you reckon? Uh, Yeah, I like you. I think you're a very good looking man. Oh, this is exactly how I hoped this would turn out. Yeah, you are. You've got it. Do you know who you look a bit like? Yeah, who? You look like a cross between (laughs) Canoe Reeves and David Nichols, the writer. Both very handsome men. (laughs) Doesn't he look a bit like Canoe? <laughs> How do you say it? Canoe. Keanu. Keanu, is it? Yeah. <laughs> I've always said Canoe. Come on. You've never do you heard know, Keanu. I always thought I was really funny, but actually I'm just pronouncing things wrong. <laughs> no, you do look like David Nichols and Canoe Reeves. Wow, Both very great. handsome. Thank you. Don't well, you agree, Stella? May I return the compliment? Do you know, Stella won't yeah. agree. She will not agree. Do you agree? No. <laughs> <laughs> Who do I look like? Well, you look like sort of a lot of girls that I've gone out with. Oh, my God. And and I definitely, when I was reading Love, Nina, I just thought I would have gone out with you so much. I just yeah, you were my Yeah, I was so cool girl. then. Were you just into the same sort of stuff that I was into and your mind worked in a way that was very appealing and, and opinionated. I yeah. was opinionated. I know. I, I do like myself then. I was really great. <laughs> I was. I wasn't, I wasn't particularly attractive, though. Were you not? No. That's not true. I've seen pictures of you. I was a bit um, grotty. How uh, how have you changed then? Why, why are you no longer that I, girl? I'm much more keen to please people. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I want people to like me and so sometimes I'm perhaps a bit you know I don't say oh you know you're an idiot and maybe that comes with age I don't know no that's in itself an attractive quality I would say which which one you know caring about what other people think yes you can can spin it as being sort of needy or uh, unctuous or whatever there's lots of negative ways to Mm. spin that but I think you, you care about what people think and you care about not needlessly Hurting people's yes, feelings yes. and ruining their day. Well, I remember and... I had a thing where I thought it was completely unnecessary to say goodbye at the end of a phone call. <laughs> I think I'd seen people do it in films where they go, yeah, meet me at the blah, and then hang up. Yeah. And I thought, that's cool. They don't have to do that stupid platitudinous saying goodbye. Yeah. So I'd be a bit like that. And people would say to me, gosh, you, know, you just hung up on me. And um, That would you... be funny to have sort of, because I think you're talking about thrillers. And things where it's like cops or robbers yes. or baddies. Yeah, but mine was like just planning to meet at the pub. Yeah. And I'd hang up. I think it would be nice, though, to have some baddies that said, all right, bye-bye. Yeah. <laughs> bye. Bye-bye, 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 bye No, you hang up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, despite your queasiness about sex when you're writing, yeah. um, not in your own life, I'm not going to cast dispersion. Yeah, I'm very keen. Uh, <laughs> IRL, very keen. You do have some good little observations about sex and particularly attitudes to sex in the 70s and in the 80s when the new book is set. And there's some stuff, there's a lot of stuff that makes me laugh. But you mentioned the fact that men used to get their cocks out much more routinely. Yeah. Can I just say to the listeners that I would never use the C word? No, no, no. Sorry, I regret using it. You do. You you say penis. Penis. I do because I think it has to be called that in that context. I know you have to. Yeah, because it makes us feel more. It's like women say growler. (laughs) You know, it's. (laughs) Stella doesn't say growler. Don't you say growler? No. 
Anyway, I said that men got their penises out in the 1980s because they did. They did. I mean, even I remember that. I remember going You'd have to... A, yeah, it didn't on. happen all the time. My friends were not in the habit of getting out their uh, willies. No, but you were young then. But sort of grown then, men But when did. I became... I was a bartender for a long while. And we had these things called bar huddles where all the bartenders would get together and go crazy. And I was already thinking... Mm, I don't know about this because I was never a sport guy. Mm. So when we used to get together and drink, me and Joe and Louie and people and my pals, we would be just crapping on about films and things like that. And we didn't, it wasn't too laddish in that way. Yes. And then suddenly I went to the bar huddle and it was very laddy. And it was all, and we got absolutely hammered. And then at one point, one guy sort of, passed out and he was just sat in the chair with his head lolling it was all like hey so everyone took polaroids <gasps> of like each one of them standing behind this guy with their willy resting yeah. on his shoulder oh yes, like a parrot yes and i didn't do that i would i'm like really to glad you didn't say. do it but that's, that's thought, completely normal for back then yeah and i remember thinking i don't i'm not going to go to another bar huddle yeah, because no, don't ever go to bar I huddles. felt bad for the guy. I thought, this is humiliating. But you see, when people talk about sort of toxic masculinity, yep. part of the problem is that so much was expected of you guys back then that, you know, you were expected to, in order to join in and be part of the group and be accepted, you had to put your willy on the man's shoulder in the mm-hmm. photo. And it was very hard to say no. I, I really get that. And I'm really, you know, I've got brothers and... They were all, you know, very well behaved, I have to say. But I know that they will have had times where they were expected to do awful things. But my memory as a female at that time was that often men would get their penis out and it wouldn't always be an aggressive act or it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like, you know, a a horrible flasher scenario. Mm -hmm. It would be seen as a compliment. Mm -hmm. It was... Can you give me an example? Well... Even someone once was driving me somewhere, you know, gave me a lift somewhere or was taking me out to the cinema, as, you know, you might do in those days. You'd be taken out and sitting in the passenger seat and he's driving along one-handed, undoing his trousers and getting his penis out. But that was an overture to what he hoped was going to be a great well, sexy yeah, time. Yeah, and it's like, it was quite precarious anyway because he wasn't that good a driver and it was you know busy streets of Leicester and Leicester's you know heaving at that time of night so he's driving on one-handed trying to change gear quickly and 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 it was completely unerotic and not very pleasant and I just said for god's sake you know put your hands on the wheel we're gonna crash and you know there's lots of things like that but one of the things I talked about last night I did this little book talk and the interviewer got me onto this thing and actually the audience were a bit horrified because it went on too long, was about when women had driving lessons in the 70s and 80s that often the driving instructor would, you know... Try it on. Yeah, just being in a close, tiny little space in close proximity with a young woman. Because uh-huh. often you were very young, having driving lessons, 17, 18. Yeah. And obviously they couldn't control themselves. And and the old... <laughs> the old penis had come out. Oh, and, God, you know, yeah. there was this one driving instructor that we all knew would do that, but he was really cheap and had never had a fail. So you'd be like, yeah, can I handle it? Can I handle it? Can I handle Harry Janis getting his penis out? Yeah, I guess that's the thing that's shocking for younger people, isn't it? Is that it's impossible nowadays to think of that kind of thing as anything other than 
sort of violence in a way. Yes. Sexual violence, yes. harassment at the very least. Yes. And I think today it would be. Yeah. But back then, of course, there were the violent times and I had lots of horrible flashy experiences where it was somebody sort of trying to impose some kind of weird power thing. I mean, there were lots of men, older men, who would suddenly whop it out and it mm. would be a bit scary. But there were the other times where it was, I think you know, trying to signal, you know, can we be romantic, <laughs> you know? And actually, funnily enough, in my current book, the book that just came out today... Reasons um, to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful. There's a part where the narrator says, you know, men quite often get their penises out. And um, my editor suggested I add the line, this was often meant as a compliment or something like that. And she's younger than me, but it was a very clever intervention because... It was often meant kindly. Yeah. I mean, obviously, it's now possible to decode that and to say, well, it was probably indicative of certain oh, very absolutely. toxic it, Yeah, it wasn't coming from a good place. No, exactly. In general. But the actual, in the moment, it yeah. wouldn't be someone that meant you harm necessarily. No, no. Yeah. But it was deeply wrong and horrible. It was. But, you know, this shocking thing looking back was... I mean, there was one time Stella and me were on holiday... With some friends, some other girls, we had a big girly holiday. And we weren't cavorting, but we were splashing in the sea. But we weren't, we weren't naked. I mean, we had our bathing suits on. But we were splashing around and there was a man sitting on a sort of a rock, masturbating. Oh, mate. And we all ignored him. And then Stella hadn't got her glasses on, so she couldn't see. And I said, oh, there's a man having a wank over there. And Stella marched over to him. And sort of hit him around the head. I probably said, can you stop and go away? <laughs> I don't think I would have hit him around the head. OK. Well, I'm a writer. I've embellished yeah, it. Yeah, I've, I've gilded the lily. She marched over, punched him in the knob. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And she slapped him with her growler. No, and then just after that, we were in a taxi going to the airport on that same holiday. And so we were in a taxi, a little group of us girls... I was sitting in the front seat next to the taxi driver and we were on these sort of mountainous roads on the way to Harnier Airport in Crete. Mm-hmm. And again, we weren't naked. We'd got clothes on. Good job. And we weren't being sexual in any way. And the taxi driver started masturbating as he drove oh. along. Yeah. And I think he started doing it because a Madonna song came on. Sure. Right. And it was, I can't remember, it might have been like a virgin. And he was going, mm, 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 uh, yeah. really getting into it. Uh-huh. And I, <laughs> I, oh. wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to tell the others in the back what was happening. <laughs> and also I thought he could crash. So I said, guys, the tax. And I sort of said it in pigeon English because he was Greek and I didn't want him to know what I was saying for some reason. And they didn't believe me. (laughs) You don't want to hurt the guy's feelings. (laughs) 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 I actually didn't. This is trying to please people. Anyway, recently the Guardian wrote to me and said, could I write about Madonna? It's her 60th birthday. And do am I a fan of Madonna? And I went... No, I'm fucking not a fan of Madonna. <laughs> and I said, I told the story to the Guardian. I said, you know, basically her song coming on. I'm not, I'm not blaming Madonna directly, but her song coming on gave him the horn. So I'm, I do not, I don't like Madonna because of that. So yeah, there we go, men and their penises. Men and their penises. I mean, it is shocking though because I think men 
for ages just didn't realise that that happened to women all I know. the time. Well, they, and still does, you know, Do you on know, public transport and stuff. I know, and that's one of the great things about something like Twitter, mm. where someone will say, has a man ever masturbated at you? Mm. Which seems like an ordinary question, but it went crazy with people saying, yes, I was frolicking in the sea with my friend and the guy. Yes, I was doing this. Yes, I was doing this. And again, a really poignant side of this whole thing was that the men going, what? Oh, my God. No, I don't believe this. And th- there were so many men really hurt and upset to think about it. Mm. it Young is, men. It's yeah. very odd. Yeah, it's yeah. very odd. I want to ask you about the actual business of writing, though. Did you always yeah. find it easy? Yes. Yes. I've always written from a very young person. I mean, I can't remember when I started writing, but, you know, 10 or something like yeah. that. But everything that I have has sort of been given to me. So my mum, who we've talked about a bit, who was a bit of a monkey and a drunk and all the rest of it. Drunky monkey. The we, <laughs> had another side to her, which was she was incredibly creative and she read a lot and she loved theatre and film and plays. So I grew up in this unorthodox, crazy childhood, but with wall-to-wall books mm-hmm. and with a mother who wrote, who wrote poetry and read poetry and would go and see Shakespeare and would you know, watch television and comedy and Spike Milligan and just sort of surrounded us with lovely, funny, creative things. So I thought writing was a normal thing to do. So what might I compare it with? So other women of my age might sort of do a bit of sewing or might uh, do a bit of gardening. Mm -hmm. For me, writing was a thing that everybody did. So I just did it. And then when I I finally, I left school at about 15 and didn't get any O-levels or anything, but I did get myself into college. Well, my boyfriend and I got got me an A-level. He helped me. He read all the texts. Yeah. And I struggled through on my own, sort of, a, I, I, I enrolled in this sort of night school. And so I did get into Thames Polytechnic to do this really brilliant degree. Which is where you met Stella. Yeah, I met Stella Heath. H-E-A-T-H. And <laughs> we both signed up to do this course called Autobiography and Fiction, which meant we would read lots of biography and autobiography. So we'd read via a camera and that kind of thing. And then one of the essays we had to write was a bit of autobiography. So I wrote a bit of autobiography. And of course, it was quite interesting because I'd had a really interesting childhood with a sort of gay dad and an alcoholic mother. And of course, it was perfect. Whereas everybody else was writing about you know, uh, crikey, you know, having their feet measured for Clark's shoes or <laughs> how they, you know, moved house once. Mm-hmm. So I thought, oh, gosh, you know, this is I'm really lucky I've got this. This is a good thing to have, all this crazy stuff. And I got a really good mark for that essay. I mean, that's the important thing for all my other essays. I'd sort of get a C and they'd say, you know, you, you know, I don't think you've read enough Wordsworth. Mm-hmm. But this one, I got an A and, and the tutor wrote, you know, this is this is a very fine piece of writing. So I thought, hmm, OK, this is maybe I should do this. So I wrote more and more and more and more. And then Love Nina came out by accident. And then when my publisher said, have you got anything else? I said, yeah, I actually have. Here you go. Oh, that's so great. I got loads. I got three novels already written. Yeah. Pretty much. And when you're sitting down and writing nowadays. Yeah. Do you, I'm trying to write a book at the moment, yeah. right? 
and I think my brain's just very disorganized anyway, and I find it hard to concentrate. So I think of it as painting a wall. You know, I'm putting down a paragraph here or a line there, and gradually they join up. You know, is it fiction? Sort of, no, it's sort of memoirish stuff. Uh, okay, so it's a memoir. Yeah. yeah, it's like an you know you put on the undercoat. Yeah, and then gradually you do yeah. another layer on top. And but how does it work for you? I mean, are, are you writing fully formed? paragraphs right the way through without stopping and then going back or do you do you just go line by line back and forth back and forth I write splashes so I write ideas something will come to me and I'll write it and that's how I've always done it until I got more serious and would see lots more writers and go to more writer events and hear people talking and hear novelists talking and I've tried to change because I thought I'm doing it a bad way. I need to plan more. See, the planning thing is a big deal. And a lot of really good writers talk about they don't write a word until they've planned it. So it's going to start there where Adam sits down on the green chair. Then he's going to go and make a lovely cup of tea. And that takes the form of sort of bullet points, does it? Yeah. This is what they do. My friend John writes a thing called a scenogram, which obviously comes from films, where you say we meet that person and that person and that happens in this bit. And so it's all very planned out. And I thought I should start doing that. So with my last book, I did that and it completely fucked me up. Oh, really? Yeah. It com- with Paradise Lodge? Yeah. I, it took me twice as long to do it. I mean, it's basically memoir. I didn't have to make any of it up. But by doing the planning... And trying to crowbar a bit of plot in because I've been very lucky and had very good reviews for most of my books. Well, all of my books have had very good reviews on the whole. I've been unbelievably lucky. But the one thing that sometimes comes out is there's not much plot. Uh Now, I don't really care about plot. I'm not interested in plot. I don't want to read plot. I want to read the stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't care whether it's just blotches. But because I sort of micro-respond to the bad stuff, so 100 people like it, one person says there's not much plot, what do you do? You try and fix the thing that that one person complained about, which has really fucked me up, as I say, and I'm never going to do it like that again. So don't plan, Adam. Okay. It's much... Now, where do you write? Where, Where does your best stuff come into your head? Now you're asking. I don't know. I've only recently begun to have a more of a routine and actually sit down in the same place before I was wandering around experimenting like is this going to work one day I went out with a camping chair and sat in a field you know I was trying everything and so and what is working well now working is uh no I I mean what's working for you oh sorry (laughs) I thought you were asking me to define work no um what is working well what seems to be working actually it was a little bit helpful after speaking to David Sedaris realizing something that was quite obvious, I suppose, which was that it would be useful to read it out to a live audience. Now, that's brilliant because then he's honing it. Now, that I don't call that planning. That's sort of editing. Whith- that's editing. editing. You're right. Yeah, yeah. It's editing. But it gives you confidence is what it does. And it also makes you realize that that chunk of 
sentences there in the middle that you sort of thought, well, you've got to have that because it's it's not as funny as the other stuff, or but but it's doing a job. Yeah. But then when you read it out, you think, no, it's not doing a job. It doesn't and need to be there. It, 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 there's got to be either either yeah. it's got to go or there's got yeah. to be a funnier way. Yeah. But then you get rattled sometimes when you're doing it live if there's a paragraph that doesn't get a load of laughs. Yeah. And yeah. you sort of think, is that an indication that it's redundant or is that an indication that it's just a more serious bit yeah i mean yeah, I, I, yeah I, yes that's I, true because it's funny everything i mean fun, you you're a comedian mm, sort of i'm a comedy writer but i my writing isn't you know 100 percent lols so no, it's very but, interesting but like sedaris every line of your stuff does a job Mm. And very seldom is a line without any humour mm. whatsoever. There's, there's there's something funny in there. Yeah. Being funny is very important mm. to me. So I will, when I'm doing events, book events, I will go for the lols all the time. And sometimes the audience don't really want that. They want me to talk about the process of writing. Mm-hmm. And so I sometimes get it wrong. I wonder, I slightly misjudged it last night. There were quite a lot of folded arms <laughs> you know when they when they fold their arms i do know oh, but hell. you never know sometimes you get those audience people you know that there's always one in the front row who looks like they want to murder you like they've been dragged there and they hate you but then you can do a gig and that person will come up and say yeah it's good afterwards or whatever. well I, those very see i have a lot of women you probably mm. have more men than i do i have my audiences are probably three quarters oh right okay women yeah or more even actually Mm. there weren't many men last night and the men always look very stern and serious but they come up afterwards and they're 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 really jolly and i think they're just listening and resting bastard face exactly it's exactly that and but if anyone smiles i then just talk to the smiling face yeah exactly. so i'm just going and then they come up afterwards and say i really didn't like the thing you said i think oh god but you were smiling yeah 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 somebody asked me in a in an interview i think it was yesterday you know have you always been funny and i find that really awkward and embarrassing what how do you cope with that do you go oh yes i love being funny very funny because for me <laughs> if someone says you're really funny or do you, you know have you always been funny it's exactly the same as someone saying how is it being pretty yeah. isn't it the same is it me or is that the truth of course it's true i think so That's how why do you I'm, handle I'm it i'm always saying to other comedians like i don't get the thing of american comedians coming off stage and telling you how hard they just crushed yeah. It's like, mate, that's not your call, is it? Yeah, no. That's the audience's yeah, no, to say. Yeah, no, God, that's so true. But not, you, you, as a comedian, it's, it's, it's weird. It's like comedians who sort of don't smile in photographs and act like rock stars and things like that. I just think, okay, you know, each to his own and there's room for every type of comedy. But I always thought comedy was about being silly and yes. dispensing with vanity and dispensing yeah. with that level of confidence and careerism or whatever it is that makes you come off stage and say, yeah, I just destroyed that audience. Yeah, I know. I, it is amazing. It's hilarious. Because you must not take yourself too seriously. Yeah. And I hate this sort of tears of a clown thing as well. Mm-hmm. That, you know, if you're really funny, if you, Adam Buxton, are really funny, that when Stella and I leave here and you're obviously sad that we've gone that you're going to go all depressed and gloomy i don't think you are i think you're very funny all the time well i'll be I'll, I'll cry for a half an hour or so and then yeah, but that's fair enough 
I'll get on with it. But um, the thing of being put on the spot and saying, uh, oh, yeah, you're a comedian, say something funny, is, <laughs> is bad. And it does happen. Like, I meet sort of friends or like older people or... I mean, there's lots of people who don't know who I am. So I'm often in situations where people say, what do you do? And I usually fudge it and I say something like, oh, well, I'm a writer or some, something that is not going to lead to the question. Oh, Say uh, something funny. Yeah, oh, say something funny. Agony. And you've got a funny bit in the new book about Lizzie being put on the spot. So Lizzie is a dental nurse. She's a dental nurse, yes. In this book, in Reasons to be Cheerful. And early on, <laughs> and she works for this monstrous character jp and you seem to have distilled everything that's worst about men into this one horrible dentist guy were you yourself a dental nurse then yes oh right of course i was of course you were because there's some deep level dental stuff in here yeah which is very funny but this guy he he smokes ciggies like uh steve martin in little shop of horrors or whatever like your nightmare dentist but he's had complaints that his fingers smell like cigarettes, so he gets his assistant to hold the cigarette for him. She feeds him. him the cigarette. Oh, it's so horrible. Yeah. But the thing is about the feeding the cigarette, I smoked as a young person, as yeah. a teenager, and we didn't have many cigarettes. And so it was quite normal for someone to say, give us a drag. Uh-huh. And you wouldn't hand them the cigarette because they'd just walk off with it and you'd have lost your fag. So you'd say, all right then, and you'd... you'd Hold the cigarette to their lips. Yeah, and give which them... is which is nice if yeah. you're friends. Yeah, or or, or or the school bully, right? Like the the real bitch from hell who go, oh, it's Debbie, give us a drag, and or in a Leicester accent. Yeah, and then then you'd hold the fag to their lips, and they would take a really, they grab your wrist and they go, <laughs> and they you'd see your cigarette just disappear. <laughs> So I, when I was asked to feed cigarettes to this guy, that thing of pulling it away too soon or holding it in too long and all that whole thing. And if he doesn't get the drag when he wants it, he's going. (laughs) 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 And then the, the, the reason I mentioned it off the back of being told to perform tricks like a monkey if you're a comedian is that your character or you foolishly boasted that you could blow smoke rings, impressive smoke rings. And so, um, so they it. say, oh, yeah, go on, blow some smoke rings. So then you have to take a drag on his, his cigarette. Cigar. And, and he, he's wet the end. And he's wet the end. Do you remember wetting the end? Yes, mate. Which, <laughs> Why did people... No, you hate... If anyone wet the end, you hate them, didn't they were, you? They were the worst kind of bastard. When you were sharing a fag yeah. and you'd get it and you'd be like, oh, my God. What did you say? Because we used the phrase bum sucked. Right. I, we didn't. Somebody else said this to me, right. bum sucked. And there's another phrase, and I can't remember what it was. But I, yes. I can't believe the Americans say bum sucked. But I looked up bum sucked, and the top definition in 2019 is to leave large, passionate hickeys, i.e. love bites, yeah. inside another male's rectum. Yeah, well, it wasn't that. <laughs> no, it wasn't no, that. Neither of us had any involvement in any of that. But there, there was a thing. Um, I can't remember what it is. I had a feeling it was an Irish name uh-huh. that you O'Leary did it or something. Right, and I don't okay. know what it was. I can't remember. But there are some phrases. But yes, the wet end. The wet end. And there's a stomach churning moment where Lizzie, the, your character in the book, has to take a drag on this sodden Siggy of this horrible guy that she's working for yeah. in order to um, do her party piece and blow yeah. some smoke rings. Yeah, yeah. A and, ring within a ring. Right. So which that, I can do. Right, okay. So, yeah. so that was one of... Yeah. The, that I was showed a, my kids it the other day. They yeah. had a friend who had a vape. 
Uh-huh. And uh, they said, you know, can you really do it? And I, and I can still do really brilliant rings. My rings, they come out quivering. Uh, they're, they're amazing. And I used to be able to Twisting do Twisting on themselves. Yeah. Oh, God, oh, yeah. Could you do them? No way. Yeah. It's like skimming a stone. I mean, you just, some people can just do it. And I am a, I, I'd love to still be able to smoke just yeah. to do them. But my, I, nobody says to me, you're a comedian, tell me a joke like you will get because yeah. I'm not seen as a comedian. I'm seen as a writer. But they know that I'm sort of, you know, dealing in funny. Yeah, yeah. So they are very funny to me. (laughs) Yeah. So I get a lot of really extraordinary, you know. Sure. You must get a lot of, here's a funny thing for you, one of your books. And actually, I mentioned this to Sedaris. I said to him, because I know he writes his diary all the time. He writes his diary every day. Mm. And I said to him, what from today will you put in your diary? I asked him this on stage and he said a very funny thing, which was about this woman who'd found an injured pigeon and a a woman that we'd just met. And she told us she'd found this injured pigeon and it was recuperating in her bath in the Premier Inn. (laughs) As we spoke, it was there in the room waiting. I mean, he is extraordinary. And and you've sort of alluded to the fact that you were lucky in some ways to have an unconventional upbringing and and, and an eventful life. And he seems to be the same to the extent that people often accuse him of making stuff up. And he says, why would I make this up? Yeah, I, yeah. This is stuff why and how? Yeah. How would you make it up? But also I said to him, so stuff ends up in your diary. Do you find people acting up to be in the diary? Right. And he said, yes. Yes. And in fact, that's why the guy stole the potato. Oh, because he wanted to be just Yeah, a and you know, I think... I, I I seem to have a memory that David Sedaris said, wrote in his book, "No way are you going to be in my diary." <laughs> I think I think that happened. There you yeah. go. That makes sense. Yeah, and I remember when Alan Bennett first published his diaries. I looked straight at the back to see if I'd be in. Uh huh. We want to be in each other's diaries. Of course, were you? No. Oh my. I've never been in any. I know. When no. Simon Pegg published his memoirs, uh, I went in and, and looked in the index as well. Joe was there and I wasn't. Oh, no. I thought, fuck you. No, Simon. it's so bad. I mean... And there was only one line anyway. It was like he was sort of referring to um, both of us actually fleetingly. Oh, yeah. He, he mentioned Joe from 90s teddy bearists, Adam and Joe. And I was like, oh, my God. I just... Slunk out of the bookshop. It's so hard. Feeling like a fucking worm. Yeah, but you just—we want to just be acknowledged. (laughs) We've been in these people's lives, and you know. So I'm very careful about that. I like to acknowledge people a lot. I'm—I will bring people in, and I will say, my friend John. But then, if it's not a thousand percent positive. Will you flag it for people before publication? Will you get in touch with old friends and say, listen, there's a character in this book and you might recognise a few things? Yeah, I did with this last book because I was a dental nurse and I did work for a dentist and I slightly still know the son of the dentist Mm. that I worked for who's exactly my age. And although this dentist wasn't isn't the the dentist in the book is much worse than the real dentist yeah. obviously the real dentist was a 50 year old man in 1980 so he was wasn't a saint and i said look i've you know i hope you don't mind and i hope i've you know made clear that it's it's fiction and i think he was a bit sad actually i do i think he felt a bit sad and said look you haven't haven't really done much to disguise him and he doesn't come out with much honor and i did feel like a bit of a heel and it's not fair because he's a lovely guy yeah 
It's so difficult, isn't it? It is because, difficult in the name of art. Yeah, yeah. You know, and actually I care much more about my mum and, you know, I've had her, you know, stealing cheese and sleeping with Vickers and <laughs> trying to sleep with my own boyfriend and... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is what you have to do is not make them quite as bad as they were and then they're grateful yeah well i'm writing about my dad who's no longer around yes and i feel as if it's like open season i can say what i want you can that you reckon you can yeah, and you must i mean i'm not throwing must. him under the bus but I'm probably saying things that I wouldn't say to his face. No. and I Which is usually an indication that you shouldn't say something, right? N- no, it's not. You don't? Be- because he, he w- he's not there to be sensitive about it. And also, he was your dad at that time. And dads on the whole were very different then. And so you're not just talking about him. You're talking about the era. Mm-hmm. And I've slightly thrown my dad under. And, you know, I've had him, I've outed him, mm-hmm. although I think he didn't mind. He, he's now dead, but when I, my first novel, which outed him, he was still alive and he was fine about it. But then he immediately died. <laughs> <laughs> he read the book and then died. <laughs> yeah, it's true. Honestly, I, that, that is so true. But, you know, he'd had a very good innings. Yeah. <laughs> And I needed to make a living. I haven't got a pension. This is the thing I keep telling myself about my dad is that bottom line, if the book does well, he'll be fine. Yeah, he'll be fine. Exactly. The worst and thing is it's like if it's like one star and no one buys it, then my dad would be going. <sighs> Typical Adam. Typical. Yes. Yeah. Couldn't you have written a decent book? I think Warts and All is best. I think it's more honest. You Actually, as a writer, it's your duty to be real that mm. i really feel that and i think as long as you're not hurting somebody and you're not hurting him because he's dead he's technically dead literally dead and in every sense dead. yes but listen i was going to talk to you about dentistry so you're a dental how long were you a dental nurse three years oh. yeah was it three years 17 18 19 yeah because i got the job so that i could go and live in leicester yeah and not live in the a tiny village anymore and then i applied for a job in the lady magazine to be a nanny in London because I sort of had had enough of being in Leicester. So, yes, I think it was three years. Did you enjoy it? Not at all. <laughs> I mean, it seems like a terrible job. It was it was such a bizarre thing to do, but I, it seemed like a huge achievement for me because I'd left school without a single O-level and it seemed quite a decent job. But, of course, I wasn't sort of learning anything. I wasn't sort of training to do anything. I was just there as a helper. Yeah. And I was very naughty with it all. And I was very sort of cheaty. And I'd sort of have my friends and sister in to give them a scale and polish. And I was always doing bits of guerrilla dentistry. And I was always polishing my own teeth and... (laughs) You know, picking around and Fluoride using treatment. Yeah, and using the the scaler to take my nail varnish off, and <laughs> and also, I'd book in a family on a Friday afternoon, a huge family of six that were, didn't exist, <laughs> and then at, on Friday lunchtime, I'd have them ring up and cancel, so, so that we could, could have... all have yeah, a couple of hours off. Nice. So I was a bit naughty, and it was a bit bleak and horrible. Actually, it wasn't. It wasn't a particularly nice thing to do. Did they have rubber dams back in those days? No. One of the things we had was I would have to hold in 
a sort of a suction thing. Yeah. Into the I hate that. Yeah, thing. so I'd have to hold it and I'd get bored. And actually it was quite achy on the old arm. Yeah. So I'd be holding it and then by the end of it I'd be sort of leaning on the I'd be all my weight on the person's jaw. <laughs> yeah. And it's maddening as well because the you, you, at that point, you really want the nurse uh, to to do a good job with that yeah. suction machine. Yeah, you do because the build up of the saliva yeah. is maddening. And then you... the patient would be sort of basically drowning. Yeah, go, <laughs> and then you then you'd suction their tongue in it's like by being accident. Waterboarded. Yes, it's not like. And then suddenly you'd suction in the sort of right, side of right. their cheek, and then you'd be leaning on it. But the thing that used to get me every day and for three years this happened every day and I used to just think you cunt <laughs> about the dentist I mean no offence poor man he was lovely but <laughs> sorry he used to <laughs> sounds the lovely the patients would come in and he'd go hello hello come in sit down and then they'd have to open their mouth and he would just talk at them yeah. And he'd say, well, I don't know about you, Mr. Jewick, but I I found my lawns as dry as a haystack, isn't yours? And the poor patient would go, oh. Uh-huh. And he'd say, you know, should we have had all these Ugandan Asians coming in? I don't think so. Do you? And, uh-huh. the, yeah. <laughs> and he would just talk mostly crap yeah. with sort of injecting someone or drilling them, chatting to them like a fucking hairdresser. And there they go. It was hilarious. I hate it when they do that. Let's segue from that to the subject of thigh vaginas. Oh, yeah. Which you also write about briefly in the book. I was not familiar with the concept of, can you explain? Have you ever... The thigh vagina? Have you ever encountered one, do you know? No, I mean, I've never interacted with one. I don't believe, unless I was being very cleverly... You don't know. Well... What Adam's talking about is in my book, my narrator talks about contraception and the fact that in sort of in the early 80s, women would start having serious relationships and they think about contraception. And it was a very strange thing, this taking this pill. And there was lots of stuff in the news and in the women's magazines about how you might suffer a loss of libido or you might gain a lot of weight or you might lose weight, or you might become very spotty, or your hair or might fall out. Or it's carcinogenic sometimes, wasn't it? Or, yes, well, anyway, that, that, yeah. all, all that, things, yeah. and, and more serious uh, side effects were, were talked about and, mm. you know, uh, as, as a possibility. And so, you know, going on the pill was kind of a mixed blessing. It was a rite of passage, and you felt very grown up about it, but you might suddenly gain two stone or just never want to have sex. Mm-hmm. And so it's a really strange thing. And I had, I'm going to say it was a friend... It wasn't me. She said, I am not going to take a pill 
that does such a huge thing to my body. I'm not going to take a daily pill that's going to do this to me in order just so that somebody can ejaculate inside me. I'm sorry, I'm just not going to do that. Fair enough. And she accidentally devised this method. Now, it just happened once to her, which she'd accidentally, or just by chance, had arranged her inner thighs so that they produced sort of a makeshift vagina. So I think they were sort of having a dry ride. Mm-hmm. Her and her boyfriend were having sort of a, what you might what's a dry ride? Dry humping would be the concept. Yeah, not non-penetrative uh, yeah. frotting. So they were doing that, and then what sort of it led to? Some, maybe some clothes came off, and then somehow it must have felt to the man as if they were having intercourse, right. but it hadn't actually gone in. It hadn't yeah. entered her vagina. Sure. It was but just going in between in two between two rather things. slimy thighs. <laughs> I'm glad you're enjoying yourself, Stella. Stella's shaking her head. Yeah. And so anyway, and all was well. And so, you know, that had happened. And then so this friend of ours told us all about it. And so anybody that had enough meat on their thighs yeah. could do this. Yeah, yeah. And I remember one friend of mine did it, made her thigh vagina too tight. <laughs> and the poor boy got a nosebleed. Uh-huh. Was it, I mean, whether the two things were related, I don't know. But she talked about that. Of course, we had a good laugh From the effort it. required to... Yeah. yeah. Or I think she might have tightened once it was in or something. Okay. It all got a little bit... And presumably this is all being done either under the covers or in darkness. So yeah, oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, I think if you were having a, you know, a, a long-term relationship with somebody... I think and you could spot the difference you might, between yeah, thighs yeah, and actual... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And also you had to be in a bit of a funny position. You had to be a bit cross-legged. Mm-hmm. It was all a bit odd. Adam, I hope you never have to experience it because it must have been quite difficult. I mean, it would be at this point for my wife to suddenly <laughs> switch to thigh vagina would be a disappointment. <laughs> Well, something new, though. You know? Listen, I don't want to rule it out. Don't rule it out. Wait, this is an advert for Squarespace. Every time I visit your website, I see success. Yes, success. The way that you look at the world makes the world want to say yes. It looks very professional. I love browsing your videos and pics, and I don't want to stop. And I'd like to access your members area and spend in your shop. These are the kinds of comments people will say about your website if you build it with Squarespace. Just visit squarespace.com Buxton for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, because you will want to launch, use the offer code BUXTON to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. So put the smile of success on your face with Squarespace. Yes. Continue. Welcome back, Podcats. Thank you very much indeed to Nina Stibby for making the time to talk to me there. Very much enjoyed that. Hope you did too. And maybe one day she will join me out here in Norfolk and uh, take a walk with me and Rosie. What do you think of that, Rose? 
oh yeah, that would be really great. And I really hope you talk a lot more about writing your book, which you probably still won't have finished by that time, because you will have vanished so far up your own bum. There won't be enough light to write the book. Bye. Ooh. Hang on. Was that you talking just now? Or was that the voice in my head? No, that was me talking. I was doing a bit of bants. I love you. I'm going gambling. Oh, good. I was worried I was going mad. I love you too. Have a good gamble. By the way, Nina's son Alfie's favourite Beatles album is Abbey Road. I should have guessed that from Golden Slumbers, really, shouldn't I? That is a good album, especially that side two medley. Although, one of the distressing things about life in the digital age is that when I'm listening to uh, songs on shuffle on my phone, I've got a lot of songs from my library on my phone, and occasionally one of those Abbey Road medley tracks comes up, but then, of course, it just cuts off when I'm expecting... So I'll be listening to Polythene Pam, and I'll be all geared up to go, She came in through the bathroom window, like a Beatle, because I should have been in the Beatles. And uh, it just cuts off. Oh, Rhodus Interruptus. It's no good. And actually what I've done is... This is a boring story, but I'm telling it anyway. Is I imported all the tracks from the Abbey Road medley into Logic Pro. And then rendered them out as a single file. So now if it pops up on my phone, I have the whole medley uninterrupted. No nasty cutoffs with random play. Good use of time buckles across all the important things in life, I see. Yes, thank you very much for noticing. Speaking of good use of time, I saw what I considered to be a great film the other day, Apollo 11, new documentary about the Apollo 11 moon landings, because 50 years ago, nearly, YT was on the moon, of course. A rat done bit my sister Nell, with YT on the moon. Her face and arms began to swell, and YT's on the moon. I can't pay no doctor bill, but Whitey's on the moon. Ten years from now, I'll be paying still, while Whitey's on the moon. They used that... That's Gil Scott Heron. Whitey's on the moon. And they used it in the film First Man, didn't they? I think. To acknowledge the fact that, uh, you know, the moon landings were by no means uncontroversial... In the late 60s, many people at the time and since have felt that uh, it was a colossal waste of money and resources. While there were so many other problems that needed dealing with on Earth. I don't know. I love space. And uh, many other positive things have come out of the moon landings. If you can rationalise all that and concentrate on the human achievement and the courage, the sheer insanity of the astro spacemen sitting on the rocket. In this documentary, they've dug out a load of new 70mm footage from the time for this thing. And, uh, you know, cleaned it all up and fuckerized it, and it looks like a modern feature film. It looks as if it was just shot recently. You have to keep reminding yourself that this footage was shot in 1969. And I've seen a lot of documentaries about the moon landings, because, you know... I'm a sad man, I want to run away from my responsibilities and float in space. But uh, this new documentary is the best one I've seen. 
It knocks the other ones into a cocked hat. Ugh, the worst type of hat. Imagine if someone bought you a cocked hat. Fucking, you got me a cocked hat? I wanted a Homburg. Is that a hat? Anyway, I like a lot of the other ones. For All Mankind is good, with the Brian Eno music on. And I liked First Man, but um, this is real. This is real footage. Or is it? Or is it? Oh, yes. Very convenient. They uh, just happened to dig up a load of lovely HD footage that's suddenly turned up. Uh, just as the 50th anniversary rolls round. Have you ever seen actual footage from the 60s? It doesn't look like that. It's very grainy. It's badly scratched. The colour's all shit. And yet, this footage just happens to be lovely and pristine. Oh, how convenient. I wonder why. Could it be that it was shot last year on 28K cameras and they can't even be bothered to make the footage look old because people are still buying into this crap about people landing on the moon could that be the reason and don't get me started on the moon the moon a shit model that someone's hanging there to try and distract us from what's really going on what's really important which is that the game of thrones production team has kept all the money that they should have spent on hiring decent writers for the last season good fly past rose they don't deal with any of those issues in the Apollo 11 documentary. But uh, I still liked it, and I do recommend it. Rosie, come on. Hey. All right, sweet girl. Let's head back, shall we? Thanks to Seamus Murphy Mitchell, as ever, without whom making these podcasts would be a lot more difficult. And thanks very much indeed to Matt Lamont for additional editing on this episode. Thanks, Matt. And thanks very much to Acast for their continued hard work in support of this podcast. I appreciate it. All right. Listen, hope things go well this week. You know, be careful and uh, keep it together. And until next time you visit myself and Rose, remember, please that I love you.